Um, before we start, Eric, I did have to say, did you intentionally pick a building with gigantic stone pillars and a marble lobby to start your stock exchange in? Obviously. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, what building is he talking about? Do we, do we have, I, I, I'm completely blind to that stuff. No, I have not. Uh, I, I did not weigh in on the, uh, on the decor of the place. That <laughs> Welcome to Season 5, Episode 10 of Acquired, the podcast about great technology companies and the stories behind them. I'm Ben Gilbert, and I'm the co-founder of Pioneer Square Labs, a startup studio and early-stage venture fund in Seattle. And I'm David Rosenthal, and I'm a general partner at Wave Capital, an early-stage venture firm focused on marketplaces based in San Francisco. And we are your hosts. Today, we tell the story of an incredibly ambitious undertaking, creating a new stock exchange. A long-term stock exchange, that is. Earlier this year, the LTSE was approved by the SEC as only the fifth body with such a license, and we have with us today none other than the founder and CEO, Eric Reese, to talk about it. Welcome, Eric. Thanks, guys. Thanks for having me on. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Listeners, you may know Eric's name from his popular 2011 book, The Lean Startup. The LTSE was actually started from an idea that Eric had while writing the book, and there are a couple paragraphs at the end that explore it. And eight years later, here we are with the LTSE as an approved national securities exchange and having raised $68 million from venture funds, including Andreessen Horowitz, Founders Fund, Floodgate, and many other top investors. It was super fun. I was on the plane on the way back from uh, visiting my family for Thanksgiving pulled out my copy uh, of a uh, digital copy of the lean startup <laughs> went through and there it was about a page and a half right at the end right at the end the very last idea in the book practically yeah yeah and uh you know i knew it was going to be polarizing from the start when i was writing the book so this is now go back to 2010 before the book even came out this is you know when the idea hatched for me and part of writing the lean startup you can imagine i felt a lot of pressure to eat my own dog food and use the techniques of lean startup in writing the book. So it was a very iterative process and I did a ton of testing and experimentation and A-B testing. And one of the final stages was I sent the full manuscript out to a lot of test readers from different audience archetypes of people I wanted to influence. And I'll never forget one of the test readers wrote me back. He said, the book is fine, except that there's one thing you have to take out there's this idea at the end of the book about this like, stock exchange thing. And listen, you basically piss away the credibility you've carefully built up over 299 <laughs> preceding pages. You just you flush it all away in one in one page. It's that bad. You must take it out of the manuscript. So that was its auspicious its auspicious first reaction uh, from a test oh, reader. So that's when I knew I was onto something. Yeah, that reminds me of the um, the Google story where uh, Larry and Sergey were working out of the Wujiki's garage and an investor came by to like a friend of the Wujiki's to meet them. And they said like, Hey, we got this like company working out of the garage. You want to meet things like, no, sneak me out the back. I don't want to talk. Yeah. To <laughs> <laughs> oh man. Yeah. Yeah. Every once in a while, you know, the conventional wisdom really serves you very, very poorly. And, and it's funny now because it's always been very polarizing, but what people don't remember is that Lean Startup was very polarizing in the early years. Now everyone's like, oh, obviously, of course, we're going to we're at least pay lip service to it, whether people actually do it or not is it, is it for a different conversation. Yeah, Eric, but, did, yeah. Your, did your book coin the phrase minimum viable product? You know, I had never heard that phrase before, but in the years since, people every once in a while will dig up like an academic paper from 1984 or whatever, where somebody used it. So apparently it has been used 
has been used before. But I think I am primarily the one to blame for the (laughs) overuse of the phrase MVP. So I I apologize. Anyone who's sick and tired about hearing about pivots or whatever, that's that's also my fault. Mostly wave portfolio companies. Yeah, so so to all your portfolio companies, I apologize. (laughs) Well, listeners, Um, it's worth knowing before we dive in, the LTSE has an ambitious vision to fix many of the problems that they see in the public markets today. From short-termism abrupt changes in governance from so-called tourist investors, and visibility into who a public company's shareholders really are. So we're excited to explore some of the company's disruptive and, as Eric, as you pointed out, controversial ideas today and discuss sort of will it be a decade from now as widely accepted as the, the Lean Startup has. So listeners, we had an awesome LP episode with Vlad Magdalene, the founder and CEO of Webflow this past week. As with many of our LP shows, we went deep with him on the nitty-gritty of company building and what he's learned on his journey from building the no-code website builder that has taken the industry by storm. You can become an acquired limited partner to get access by clicking the link in the show notes or going to glow.fm slash acquired. And if you stick around after this episode, you can hear an excerpt from that show. Well, before we dive in, I want to thank the sponsors of all of Season 5, Silicon Valley Bank. Earlier this week, I caught up with our sponsors, so let's dive in for a little Q&A. I'm here today with Managing Director Lewis Hauer in SVB's startup banking practice. So Lewis, you work with primarily seed and Series A companies. What has changed in the last year or two for them, and how does that relate to what Eric is doing with the long-term stock exchange, given that that's so much later down the life cycle of a company? Thanks, Ben. Yeah, the biggest thing that we're seeing in the early stage ecosystem is a massive flight to quality. The year-over-year deal count is down 30%, but the amount invested is up almost 2x, which is indicating these companies have to be at a level of metrics and traction that we haven't ever really seen before. And, And it's very important for those companies to realize that starting that at the early stage is what sets them on the path to have not only the traction, but long term, the transparency and showing that there's a core business that lies there to allow them to go be listed on a long-term stock exchange and and be be viewed differently in the market than some of the things we're seeing today that don't have a core underlying business model straight out of the gates. Great insight. And uh, relates a lot to what we've talked about previously on the show as sort of seed is the new Series A. I think you framed it nicely as a flight to quality. Absolutely. Thanks, Lewis. Thank you. Thank you to SVB. And now, on to the long-term stock exchange. But before that, before the lean startup, you worked at a couple pretty fat startups. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Um, Much has been written and said, of course, about your history and how the lean startup movement got started. But when you studied CS at Yale, right? And then you graduated and you joined a startup uh, at the time called Mm Dare.com, which was an early virtual world. Oh, yeah. And I believe if I'm getting my history right, operated for three or four years without launching a product just hiring tons of people, raising tons of cash, and then burst out into the world. Like, how, how did you, you know, you're a senior at Yale. How did you decide, oh, I'm going to go join okay. this crazy thing? So, all right, first of all, you got to go back in your time machine. I, I was originally in the class of 2000. So the dot-com bubble swept through the world while I was an undergrad. But New Haven, Connecticut was like basically the last stop on the train before the whole thing imploded. So I did a, I dropped out of school and I did a, a startup from my dorm room, which, you know, 
could have, would have, should have been Facebook, but we didn't exactly know what we were doing. So we had kind of like the first half of the movie, the social network experience. What, was it actually a social network? Or was a, that? Oh, here, I'll tell you our idea. Tell you, you think this is a good idea. We thought that college students from top universities, so, you know, Ivy League universities, should create online profiles for the purpose of sharing. Sounds like a terrible idea. Which, which <laughs> not, I, that wasn't so bad. What was so funny about it? I mean, now I can joke about it. Of course, at the time, this was horrible. But we thought that they should use those pro- profiles for something serious, you know, a real business. So we thought they should create uh, profiles for getting a job. Yeah. And we should create a resume database and share the profiles with employers who wanted to hire them. So we were very focused sort on... Sort of like an evergreenmonster.com type Well, it wasn't job postings, <laughs> but resume database. It was weird. Like, in some ways, it was not like it's really not a crazy idea. Like, we could then do analytics on to, fi- to match the right people to the right jobs. And, you know, like, like there was certain, like, sensibleness to it. But first of all, if we had actually understood the concept of a pivot and if someone had even suggested to us the idea that we could pivot into being facebook we would have been totally dismissive because we were like no no we're trying to build a real business yeah and we didn't really understand what a real business was so we had no concept like the idea that there's like the idea of a digital marketplace or that you know then attention-based product would be valuable we had none of that none of that insight and you know it was very very much of a of a moment when people were building digital technology without a clear purpose as to why. Yeah. Right? We just saw that everyone was doing it and it's just that's what we wanted to do and so so we did it. This so it is was a, a total aside but it fit, fits right into that. Were, were you at Yale at the same time as Matt Kohler? Was that? I was, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I remember I remember um, when he was uh, a McKinsey consultant uh, trying right, to talk. I, we, right. we, had, we had coffee one day he's like, should I, do you think I should join the technology industry and we were thinking about some things he could work on so yeah, that's it's a small club of people from that wow. from that world who went on to, to do good things. And Matt would, of course, be one of the first employees at LinkedIn and then first employees at Facebook. Yeah, one then. of the most important Facebook early employees yeah. Uh, yeah. on the business side, really. Uh, uh, and is a great VC now. Yeah. Um, but anyway, that's, that's yeah, so funny. Yeah, you yeah. were building a social network for college students focused on recruitment. And he would go to, to yeah. LinkedIn. Yeah, Facebook, yeah, exactly but. right. We could, if we'd had any sense at all, we would have called yeah, Matt and what like, what should, been. what should we do? What should we do? But yeah, I, I remember when he went to work, when he first went to work at LinkedIn too. And I was like, oh, yeah, well, what's, and I was like, well, I, I already know about the social networks and it's, it's never going to be anything, right? Like the biggest problem in a being in, in, in entrepreneurship is you, you learn what's not going to work. That's not something that can ever be learned. Yeah. Because just because it didn't work before doesn't necessarily mean yeah. it won't work the next time. And that's what it's drives us all. the hardest thing in venture investing, too. That drives us all crazy. You, yeah. you overfit on the data that you have access to. Anyway, long story short, I went back. You know, the startup failed. So I, uh, unlike the Facebook founders, I went back to school and finished my degree. If you've ever watched one of those movies about entrepreneurship where, like, the plucky protagonist goes back to the people who said it would never work. And they're like, you were wrong. I was right. You know, rah, rah, rah. In real life. You get to be the one to go back and be like, remember when you said I should not drop out of school because something will ever come of it? You were right. Yeah. <laughs> I'm back. Uh, thanks for that advice. It's just a hard, What's my I mean, homework? Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's, it's, it's a totally brutal and awful experience. But I love the process of being able to translate ideas into products like so quickly and the rapid pace and iteration of a startup. So when I graduated, I was thinking about what to do next. And I, you know, I was just applying to jobs. I didn't know if I would do a startup or I would go to a big company. I looked at looked at a lot of stuff, and my resume came across the desk of this crazy virtual reality startup in uh, in Menlo Park, and they flew me out. And you know, we'd all read uh, Snow Crash and the same sci-fi books. It's, and they, it's coming. It's coming next year for sure. It's been coming for a long time, and they sold me on this incredible vision. You know, it was a pretty small company at the time that I joined. They had really high quality venture capital backers, and I wanted to apprentice myself to the best entrepreneurs I could find. So I was like, this is an incredible management team. These people really know what they're talking about. You're going to learn exactly. I'm going to learn exactly what to do. All the things I did 
did wrong, I'm going to learn how to do it right. And what's what's quaint about the story now is that by modern standards, it wasn't even that big of a disaster. We raised so much more yeah. money now. The for company startups. actually chugged along for like. 15 years right like it yeah, didn't you know it didn't didn't die right away but like you know i remember i used to tell people in my like when i first talked about lean startup i'd be like the joke of there.com is that raised 50 million dollars with no customers so and people would be like ooh, and now it's like what was that the seed round yeah <laughs> right like oh was that why is that a lot I, I, I talk to like students now and they're like they don't get the joke they're just like right then yeah, what yeah. happened i'm like no, no that's that's <laughs> the lot of money that we set on fi-. and they're like what so you know it's a very different era but unlike today we did not have any of the vocabulary of lean startup so we had no concept of minimum about product pivots you know continuous deployment none of that stuff so it was self-consciously waterfall style development by the time the product launched i remember we had almost 200 employees we had a whole warehouse full of customer service reps to handle the anticipated demand oh <laughs> that God. all of the demand. And this is a consumer, consumer virtual, virtual world, startup. world product, oh. uh, you know, big nationwide launch TV and everything. And the only problem was that the customers never read the business plan, so they didn't know what to do. <laughs> Other than that, it was a brilliant thing. And it was an incredible team. That team has gone on to found an incredible array of startups, and they've created, generated so much value in the world. Um, so it was really a very talented group of people. But What, what companies came out of it? Um, Arista, the oh, um, yeah, yeah. network equipment company, the, the CTO there uh, and, and founder was the was CTO of, of their well, I, I shouldn't be name dropping. A lot of cool people. Yeah. And I'm like, everyone I don't mention will be met by a bunch of the, <laughs> the very early Asana people uh, were were there, folks. Actually, and then a lot of their people were early Google employees because as uh-huh. as their did rounds of layoffs, the earlier you got laid off from there, the earlier you wound up at Google. <laughs> so the the first people to get laid off made the most money by far. So it's just funny funny how this how this world works. Yeah. And uh, no one should ever take investment advice from me. Because I'm, I had many friends that who went to go work at pre-IPO Google. They're like, hey, you should come check this thing out. It's Can't tell you exactly why, but you should come. And I'm like, ah, Google, what's it? Yeah, I met Matt Kohler, who told me, it's like, I do this LinkedIn thing. Ah, what is that? <laughs> Facebook? Is that really going to be a thing? So yeah. I, I have turned down all the big, uh, all the big opportunities uh, in this era. And now you can pitch them to come list with you. Yeah. So and it's yeah. actually, but it turned out to be for the best because because uh, I, I went up on a path that I wouldn't I wouldn't trade for anything. But it's certainly, I mean, you know. If you're going to work in this business, and especially if you're going to be in Silicon Valley, you will have to confront like the financial costs of the road not taken, like every day, every year, all the time. And if you're mo- if you if you get ego attached and you're motivated by the financial return, like uh, it is a really horrible way way to live. So it it kind of forces you to um, only look forward. Well, you can do that, although I think that can be pretty stressful too, or <laughs> or try to develop actual equanimity about the outcomes here. You don't really have control over what's going to happen, and the uncertainty is so high, you can't predict, and you have to come to accept that. That's uh, If you're going to make entrepreneurship and the entrepreneurial ecosystem a career, which is really like, that's a new thing yeah. that's possible in history. Like, that wasn't that was not it's even really new yet. in the last 10 years yeah so like, very very the time you're thing. talking about like you were the crazy one to yeah, come out no, here. no like, parent yeah. is proud you know until 10 years ago that their kid is leaving a great education turning down the job at the big company and making no money and starting a company that's yeah. a new phenomenon yeah yeah it can be hard for the family and others to uh, to understand but i think now we're starting to build up this idea that it can be a valid career and therefore, it can have a certain kind of job security attached to it, even though the individual companies may fail. So uh, I do think that's a very exciting, a very exciting development. So you leave there as it's all imploding around you, uh-huh. and you start another company, mm-hmm. IMVU, and one of your investors is 
Steve Blank. Mm-hmm. How did you meet Steve? He was a there investor. Ah, so yeah. I was very lucky. I mean, honestly, I don't deserve any of this. I was very, very fortunate. Uh, the refugees from there, you know, a couple of them picked me to be a co-founder of another company. And they were the ones that had the prestige and the relationships. I was just a junior guy on the engineering team. You know, what, what, what did I know? And so they recruited Steve and a bunch of other investors like, hi, this is a very Silicon Valley thing. It's like, I know we just lost you a ton of money, but Here how about <laughs> you give us some more money and this time we'll actually make you some money. And, you know, most of the investors, like if you're going to be a good investor and you have an entrepreneur that you like, you yeah. can't let the fact that they lost your money deter you from making the next investment. They did that. He was one of them. But he, Steve's idea was, hey, guys, I, I don't mind setting some more money on fire here, but how about you guys audit my class? That I'm just starting to teach. He was teaching at Berkeley. at Berkeley at the time, right? Yeah. 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 We were in the very first or second year he was teaching what was he called customer development at Berkeley. And uh, and my co-founder and I, which slept down from Palo Alto. And that was a new phrase Berkeley. at the time. I mean, now no it's, one ever it's heard like that phrase a, before. It's a yeah. whole discipline. But I was in the room when a room full of Berkeley MBA students, every class session would like argue with him and push back and be like, this is the stupidest thing I've ever heard. I and can like, so imagine that like, happening. And, and what was funny is that he came from an enterprise background. People don't remember yeah. Epiphany now, Epiphany, but it was yeah. a big enterprise software, you know, dot-com phenomenon. And he would be presenting stories from Epiphany and the, in the MBAs, like whatever you present to MBAs, they'll be like, Sure, it would work for X, but it'll never work for Y. Like, whatever X and Y is doesn't matter. So they'd be like, sure, old man, that works for enterprise, but how would it ever work for consumer? And, of course, we then did it at InView, and then I would be teaching in business class. He would often tell me, invite me to guest lecture in his class or whatever. And, I, and if I meet with MBAs, they're like, well, sure, of course it's going to work for consumer, but how would it ever work in the difficult world of enterprise? And it's just like, everyone can just pick a lane, <laughs> pick, a, pick a criticism that you want to have. No, that's not how it is. But it was considered completely crazy. Steve, I, you know, he, even among and, Silicon and, Valley people, they thought he was nuts. And and the the crazy notion at that time for him was that y- you need to aggressively listen to your customers, and that it's not about your vision; it's about what they tell you. And then you need to to inform your product roadmap based on customer discovery. He was arguing for a parallel discipline to product development. He'd had his like really raw thinking about. What do you do if you're the head of marketing for a waterfall-style engineering company that is absolutely convinced that their product is going to work after they set all the money on fire and do the big launch? Like, what can you do about that? I remember reading it, and I was being in his class, like, you're being very derogatory towards engineers. This is not, Steve, this is not how engineers behave. And of course, he's like, oh, yeah, it is. I was like, no, but there's like a new generation, and we're we'll do agile and do this. And you know, he had never heard of that stuff. He was from a different, a different time. So it was a cool, it was a very cool meeting of the minds eventually where he was coming at this from a marketing view where you should have these customer conversations in a very disciplined way. And he was trying to get, bring some rigor to that marketing activity so that engineers would take it seriously. That's, I mean, that was really the whole point of it is like, how do you sit down with a very technical team and tell them, listen, with, with all due respect, we're building the wrong product. Yeah. You're doing, you might, it might be technically excellent, but it's the wrong product. And, you know, now we have much better terminology and theory and we've come a long way since those original was, uh, frameworks. Do you know, was Steve in, in his thinking about this, was he influenced by crossing the chasm? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He he was very into crossing the chasm and uh, uh, the innovator's dilemma. Yeah. You know, think about Jeff Moore and, and of course, Steve. And like, I didn't think about this until now. They're marketers. Like, they're coming at yeah. it from a marketing background. And like, I wanted to ask you how you got inspired and I presume worked with Steve to then write The Lean Startup after like Four Steps to the Epiphany was already out there. What was the insight of, hey, this can be bigger and you know brought to a broader audience? Like, 
you know, I was just frustrated. I had never had a master plan to do this. I just, like, I remember buying copies of Four Steps of the Epiphany for, like, everyone on my team and be like, well, everyone read this on Friday, come into the office on Monday, and we're doing it starting Monday. That was my, like, theory of change. When I was at InView, it was my job to try to explain why we did things the crazy way that we did them. Because I came up from the engineering practice. So we, I was focused on speed of deployment, right? Continuous deployment. Sing, like what we would call now single piece flow from lean manufacturing applied to software development itself. Viewing designed but undeployed features as work in progress inventory and therefore a liability. Untested, unvalidated assumptions are inventory and are bad, not good. So you don't want to build that stuff up. You want to flush right. it out as soon as you... So I, I would try to explain and I would make up theories and I was constantly trying to come up with a language and a theory for why. But yeah, I certainly have been advocating for kind of like somewhat dubious and unpopular ideas. Like I have the I have the staying power for that. And it took me a long time to even give it a name. Lean Startup isn't even the first try, by the way. It took, took, took me a long time to find a, a way to talk about this that I could get civilians interested in. Like process junkies and people who are in demand like that those people are right. easy academics academics you know whatever but like actual work people who work for a living who are like i'm just trying to get my job done today i don't really want to hear about your 92 step process to right. whatever like, i don't want this thing to fail but i do have a job to do yeah and so it took me a long time first to i ran the like employee orientation and interview like just explain to our own employees why do we do things in such a crazy way why like why so i've been in interview for like five-ish years and you know they brought it's like very old like classic so they brought a professional ceo we didn't totally get along i was like you know what i'm not going to be the founder who has to be kicked out i'm just gonna i'll voluntarily transition out so i was thinking about what do i do next and all these vcs were calling me hey you should come be come an be EIR. EIR. yeah you know <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't like this is you know i didn't know what the career path in silicon valley was like and so i was like this is all very interesting and i was thinking about what to do next and this funny thing started happening where vcs would ask me to come meet with portfolio companies that were going too slow because I had this reputation because of InView's engineering prowess that I could magically make engineering teams work this faster. This is totally how the mind of a, you know, circa mid-2000s era VC worked, which is just like, oh, like these guys, they got some fairy dust. I don't know what it, I don't know how this thing works, but like you just go sprinkle that over there. <laughs> like, you got that's you got it exactly right. And I would be like, no, no, no. Actually, I'm not special at all. I just have this superior theory. And they'd be like, sure, sure, sure. But could you just do the dust anyway? So I I go and have these meetings, and and meeting would go like this. The VC would tell the company, this guy can really help you. You should invite him for a meeting. A friend of the firm. Yeah, a friend of the firm. Uh, the worst. So then they have to do it. So they invite, call me. Would you do us a favor and come have a meeting? Sure, come meet the whole management team assembled for me. And I would start telling them stories about what had worked for us at InView. And I would say, we ship software to production uh, 40 times a day on average. And they'd be like, that, sure, that could work for like three, a three-person team, but it could never work for a six-person team or whatever. Like whatever size N they were, it could never work for size N times two. And I'd be like, no, 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 we, we doubled and doubled what we're doing. And they would start to get angry. And they would yell. I, I would get yelled at in these meetings. They'd be like, "That's crazy. That could never." Because they work. didn't ask you for the meeting in the first place. So I'm sure it's. I didn't know what was this, going on. I yeah. thought I was just really bad at having these meetings. They would go so badly, and the people would hate my guts, and I, I'd be basically be like ejected. And you're like, you know what for, I need to do? I need to write a book about this because it's going so well. So I wish I had that. So, so I, at the end of the meeting, I'd be like, "Listen, you called me for this yeah. meeting. You asked me here as a favor, and now you're mad at me." And you just like, and I'm not telling you a theory. I'm just telling you a story of what I witnessed with my own eyes. You think I'm lying? Like what? So that kept happening to me. And I had this great idea. If I write some of these stories down 
then the next time somebody calls me for one of these meetings, I can say, hey, why don't you read this first? And if you think I'm crazy, maybe let's not have the meeting and then I don't get yelled at. This was my genius plan. Okay, that's how far ahead I was thinking. So the other thing you don't understand about that time is startup people didn't blog. Yeah, blogging was nobody had a one blog. of the first. I was one of those. I, I can tell you all the bloggers who were writing in Silicon Valley at that time, because when I started blogging, they all reached out to me because I showed up in their HTTP referrer logs. And these blogs were so low traffic, they could tell when a new person entered the scene. Dave McClure, wow. Sean Ellis, and Andrew Chen all called me within a month of my starting to blog wow. to be like, what's up? Who are you? And of course, they were asking, who are you? Because I did not put my name on my blog because I was embarrassed about it. It was anonymous. What was your blog called? It was called Startup Lessons Learned. In the passive remember. voice, not by anybody. They had been learned. The startup had learned its own <laughs> lesson somehow, mysteriously. And, uh, and that's how it started. And then people wanted to know who I was and they wanted to hear what I had to say. And I was like, well, I better give this theory a name. And I started talking about it as Lean Startup. And, and you know, with the concepts just, of MVPs and pivots, had you already started to crystallize those at this point or did that come through the Yeah, blog? yeah, I did. But it wasn't like crystal clear. It was like I had this constellation of concepts, some of which have been long since you know left behind. Like I, I was every bit as excited about teaching people about engagement loops, which is the retention uh, flip side of viral loops, which like, nobody wanted to hear about that. Viral loops were too complicated. Right? And it was like, I was like, but that's just as important. And so, you know, the concept Which that really landed for people is actually still a failing of startups today yeah, is everyone totally. focuses on getting your CAC down. So few people focus on retention and even less people focus on like revisiting pricing strategy. Like you have all these different levers. These things are unbelievably mispriced. I, yeah. I've never worked at a startup where a very simple set of experiments around pricing hasn't revealed dramatic, differently economics. Yeah, it's, uh, it's embarrassing. You know, it was just a very special time where there was an incredible hunger for new ideas about entrepreneurship, and this thing wound up taking over my life. Wow, it was, it there, was a wild experience. I know we're spending a bunch of time, but like this, like this really changed the fabric of the ecosystem. Like in reflecting back on it, can you identify like what were some of the wins that were in the air at that point in time that like people were hungry for this different way of thinking about startups? Yeah, it's hard to remember now, but 10 years ago was a financial crisis. Yeah, yeah. Remember RIP good times yeah. and that whole thing. So first of all, it was very convenient to be known as the lean startup guy at a time when Sequoia Capital telling everyone to cut costs. And I got a lot of phone calls from founders who would be like, hey, I heard you can help me get Give out of my of office lease. Can you help me with repo on furniture? Like, how do I get rid of these Aeron chairs to lower my burn rate? Different lean, buddy. Yeah. yeah. And, and what's funny is I would tell people, he would call me for these for advice on, on burn. I said, listen, the build, measure, learn feedback loop, the reason it's important is we can analyze every dollar you spend and we can ask ourselves, is that dollar helping us learn critical things that you need to know right now about your company or not? If it is, it's worth spending on. And if it's not, you should cut it whether it's a crisis or not. It's pure waste. So just don't do it. And you can imagine the furniture guys would be like, uh, thanks. Thanks for that really helpful advice, buddy. <laughs> like, anyway, but my office lead, right? Like, I don't want this. Like, there are people are not very theory oriented. So it took me a long, long time to figure out how to make this practical for folks that they could actually do it. And I, ne I mean, I really never dreamed that it would have the kind of impact that it did. It's um, quite a moving thing, actually. I want to tell this story in medias res a little bit. So the natural next question would be, you know, how did this lead to starting LTSE? But I think to, to set the stage for listeners, Eric, can you give us a high-level overview of what on earth are you doing? And then let's get to how did you get here and why. Oh, so what am I doing now? Yeah, what is yeah, the LTSE? LTSE? So one of the privileges 
of getting to work with so many companies. I mean, I have, you name an order of magnitude of company from like two founders in a garage up to the biggest multinationals and governments in the world. And I've had the privilege over the last 10 years of working with all of them. Because once the lean startup hits and becomes a thing, it's not just startups that want to talk to you, right? No, it's, I mean, it's, it's huge, huge companies and nonprofits and NGOs. Like we can talk about, there's a whole community of people that study um, lean startup for national defense within the Five Eyes uh, Intelligence Alliance across nations. I mean, it's crazy how many places this thing has gone. And in particular, many of the early startups who were just two people in a garage when they first heard about Lean Startup, they grew and got to product market fit. So I, I mean, I was really a, a privilege to get to work with some of these companies as they scaled up and then yet to be called into these much bigger companies. And it's like, there are some things that are different at 10 people, 100, 1,000, 10,000, 100,000, 300,000, you know, a million or more. But there's some things that are very consistent. And so I had had this experience and I, to me, it felt like being issued a backstage pass to capitalism. Like I get to see how business, I've lived in California my, practically my whole life. And now here I am traveling the world and getting to see all these problems. And it, you, no matter where you go, no matter who you talk to, if you say like, what are the problems that afflict your organization? Like be, everyone's like short-termism. We're living quarter to quarter. You know, we can't make the right investments. We're not really focused on the long-term. We have bad ownership. They don't have constancy of purpose. Like it's just a epidemic problem. Could and read Elon Musk's Twitter feed here <laughs> or wherever. I mean, yeah. it just, it's something, it's like one of the very few things that pretty much everyone in business agrees on. And yet, if you ask people, what are we going to do about it? It's like asking, what are we going to do about gravity? You're not going to do anything about it. It's just a fact of life. It's like, you don't, it's like, who do I complain to about gravity? Nobody. You just fall down when you fall down. Like, that's just how it goes. And so, like, we've attributed, especially in Silicon Valley, we treat the facts of our capital markets and the infrastructure of our financial reality as facts of nature when they are in fact human creations and they're changeable. And for whatever reason, this always struck me as wrong. So LTSC is our attempt to fix that problem by aligning ourselves with the next generation of, of leaders of companies who have a very different value system than what's come before. And their employees are activists. They care a lot about sustainability, diversity, and equality. They genuinely believe, deluded or not, you know, like they genuinely believe that uh, companies can be a force to change the world for the better. And they want financial infrastructure that supports that vision. And there isn't any. Yeah. And so this is a just um, crazy. I know that the LTSC, as a, a regulated body, is very flexible in the type of guidelines. They they defer to the entrepreneur. You, you, you let the, the company sort of pick a lot of the mechanics that they want to bring in. But what are some example ideas that you've had of mechanics that can change these things for the better, that companies who list on the LTSC versus the NASDAQ or in conjunction with the NASDAQ or, or New York Stock Exchange, what mechanics could fix this stuff? Yeah, so this is a very careful balance. You know, I've learned this over many years now of testing and testing and testing and refining this. Really? You? Yeah, of, of all people. <laughs> without which we would definitely be dead. That we need to have a principles-based approach here. So we need companies to say, I'm willing to sign up to these principles. For example, that the long-term investors are my valued partners and should be rewarded accordingly. That I'm going to treat all of my stakeholders as first-class members of my decision-making process. My employees, my community, my vendors and suppliers my customers. You know, the acid test of certain companies in recent years is when you discover that there's scientific research that shows that your product is unhealthy and addictive for your customers, 
are you going to do anything about it or are you going to bury the research? And like, think how different our world would be if certain companies had made certain choices that are different than they did make versus like think about an older generation of leaders like when, you know, Tylenol famously had to recall all the pills off every shelf in America and how like the short-term pain of and doing the right thing. they didn't even need thing, to, but they did. They did it because they all. might have been necessary. Yeah. Because they understood that earning the public's trust over the long run is far more important than the short term. It's value creative for all shareholders. Exactly right. So you can just pledge those principles like, and be like, rah, rah. Put it in your values. Whatever. Put it in your S1 and be like, we're going to be so great and all this stuff. Which and every S1 every in the S1 last it's two like, years. It's unbelievable, says, you know, right? From but, we work to <laughs> Right. Know, and that's the, that's the problem. Investors take those uh, aspirations and, they, and they just put it in the shredder. Yeah. So like, this isn't even worth the paper you printed on because how do I know that you're serious about it? So the idea of LTSC is companies should commit to these principles by making a binding pledge to operationalize each one. And the mm. flexibility that we have created is so that it doesn't have to be one size fits all. Every company does exactly the same thing, but every company has to do something real. And we act as the certifying body to say, yeah, that's mm. real or it's not. So you make it by sort of registering the implementation of such a pledge with you. It then becomes like a securities violation to break it. You got it exactly right. So there's real enforcement penalties if you don't do it. And therefore, only the good companies would do it. The bad companies would be crazy to do this. So you have like the perfect self-selection. That's what you want. So for example, one of my favorites is public companies today, generally speaking, don't know who their owners are, which you can't run a private company this way, right? We obsess about getting the smart money on the cap table. And the idea that when you go public, you just give it up. Like, well, whoever happens to buy it, I guess it's fine. And I've met so many companies who like, they literally pay for a service. I love this. This is my favorite like yeah, euphemism in so, so service. Surveillance. Stock surveillance. Like yeah. you're hiring the CIA to go suss out who owns your, because like, no, you need to know who your investors are. Therefore, know what they want. Make sure that you're actually aligned. So uh, we believe that every company has the right to know who its long-term investors are, but in exchange for that transparency, should reward them, should give them additional voting rights, should give them additional economics, uh, additional superior capital raising opportunities, that, that kind of thing. So that's like that's a principle that's like very high level, but we drive it down into the market microstructure and make it make it and, real. And so let's dive into those. What what could superior economics mean? So if I hold the stock longer, my stock could become more valuable. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you could have a progressive dividend that's paid out preferentially to those who have held longer. You know, if because there's no, I mean, for well, as far as I know, all of history of uh, equity securities, you know, there's this concept of preferred equity and common equity. Right. There could be other classes of equity. That's correct. And those different classes can have different economic yeah, terms, it's, it's rights, actually, voting rights. It's actually rights, a very yeah. old idea. And when you talk to like old timers in securities law and and um, you know corporate structure, they're like, yeah, sure, this isn't that like. This isn't like impossible to do. It's just practically speaking, we don't do it because there's so many forces that pressure people into conformity. And yet how ironic that we as the industry of innovation are hyper conformist and conservative about how we structure companies and how we make them bring them to the public. And then now we've kind of stopped doing it. So now we're we're so unhappy about the public markets. We're taking our ball and going home, and we're not taking yeah. companies public until very very late in their life. Yeah. And how antisocial is that? <laughs> I mean, these companies well, don't so go public for fifteen years. You know, when you were saying a minute ago about, I I hadn't put two and two together either, which is funny because we bring up the financial crisis so many times on this show. You know, whether yeah. it's it really Uber shapes everything that's happening in our era. Everything yeah. of this era, I think it, it's so right to say that shaped the desire for the lean startup movement. There also are like a bunch of trends, similar huge trends in the financial world that have 
kind of led, I, I think, to LTSC. So I'll throw them out there and, and yeah, feel yeah, free sure. to agree. I'd love to hear your thoughts. One, so first you had the rise of algorithmic trading yeah. in the public markets. So you went from whether you were a value investor, a growth investor, like whatever, it was like people were hitting buttons to make trades. Yeah, no longer. Not that long ago. And now most most trading and most ownership in the public markets are not people hitting buttons. It's machines hitting buttons and they hit them a lot faster and they care a lot less <laughs> about the long term. Two, you have the rise of index funds, right? So now you have a whole nother class, which is a huge portion of the public equity market which isn't even anybody making the decision. It's just a passive, you know, this fund is going to track the market. Oh, now we have the rise of passive funds. We have competing index providers who have different index formulas for what tracking the market is. So the active decision-making has just been moved from the fund manager to the algorithm of the index provider. Yeah, yeah. abstraction on abstraction. It's it's getting wild. So it, now yeah. you have a situation, I, I think, in the public markets where... What used to be a loud cacophony of voices in the marketplace voting on buying and selling shares, the number of active human voices has been reduced hugely. So and a lot so less information flowing into the market. A lot less information flowing. Yeah. And so you can be, if you're a loud activist shareholder, dissenting voice or whatever, you can now be heard in a lot. And if you move the stock, all these passive index and algorithmic trading is going to move with you. Um, yeah, you can have a huge impact on a stock. And importantly, right now, governance is tied one to one with ownership. And so, you know, you could have these very short term investors who just arrived who can vote and change control of the company, which makes sense. They own it. But Eric, LTSE allows for a different view on that. So can you talk a little yeah. bit about separating? Economics yeah, sure. From well, there was a, actually one, one thing real quick before that. Right. So then you have Snapchat go public, right? Or you have all these companies going public now with these Founder dual control. class, multi-class share structures. Yeah. Snap was like the most egregious of like, no, you guys get no votes. And I understand it as a founder. You're like, screw this. Like, yeah, right. But yeah, what, okay, so what's the other path? <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, like I, I get the view that if you can be emperor for life, why not? Pretty good gig. But I think it, first of all, I think it's really important that people should see the fact that founders are taking these extreme measures is a reflection of an extreme problem. Like these are extreme reactions to an extreme problem. And I would, I would point to two of them. First of all, in the old days, when I first got into this business, founders were in the biggest rush to go public because their billion dollars are about to become fully liquid and they would make a ton of money. The idea that you would put off becoming a liquid billionaire for 10 extra years, yeah. like that's not an act of greed. Yeah. There's something else is going yeah, on here, right? People are putting off their own mega payday. Now, you know, of course, there are secondary transactions. And people, it's like they're not starving or anything, but like, Generally speaking, highly capitalistic and competitive people would rather have $1 billion than like $50 million. And they're choosing not to do that. And, uh, you know, the founders are one thing, right? But like the venture investors, right? Like you're Who would have like, thought? Ben and I run funds, you know, man, we would really like to distribute returns to RLPs so that we can raise new funds. But like, and, so that, the, and that would actually be better for the ecosystem as a whole. Like one yeah, of the problems right. we're having is all these early returns are frozen. They're not being recirculated like these they used to returns. be. And so um, there's not as much, even though we have a lot of seed stage activity right now, we could have exponentially more if we would unfreeze all these, uh, all these transactions. And similarly, like very few founders can actually justify perpetual dual class control of a company. Right, even if you're like, I'm the greatest CEO that could ever happen. And it's, but it's like, well, even if you like develop dementia, or not, like, even if your children aren't as good a CEO as you, <laughs> they should inherit the company from you. Like that's called feudalism. Like we have we have like a lot of political experience with these systems, and we know there well. <laughs> does not go well. And most founders 
you know, if you really press them in private, they'll say, I don't think this makes that much sense. But that's how bad standard governance is. So, Eric, what's an example mechanic then where, uh, David, I like the way you painted it, that for a long time, economics and governance were really tightly coupled, except for companies like media companies where, you know, there was a a reasonable argument of why uh, a dual class structure should exist. You needed to be independent from the subjects you were covering. Exactly. Yeah. And so then the last five, eight years, we see this incredible rise in massive, massively separated classes where the founders own everything. There's no way to ever change that. Sometimes the common gets no votes. It's crazy. And what's a way that you could sort of have a, a middle ground? Here? Yeah, I think the, the compromise that I personally think is best is if you're going to be dual class organized. It's, I think that's okay. But then you have to have a way for the long-term investors to join you in that privileged class. Mm. They have to be able to earn their way into the better class so they can join you in co-determination of the company. That's really in the company's long-term interest because except for the very few of these founders that are investing in immortality, everyone else is planning to die. (laughs) So there will be another CEO of this company one day and your dual class protections will not protect them. So what's the plan for the next CEO? If you're really thinking about, I want to create a a lasting institution, what's the plan? Why would the next CEO care at all about your ethos of multi-stakeholder development, of your ethos of long-termism? Like why? They they could easily be as good as you do of vetting them. They could just be like, you know what? My incentives are to run quarter to quarter. Screw this. So we have to rely on all of the long-term stakeholders in the company, including the long-tenured employees. And hopefully this next CEO is himself a long-tenured employee, but also the long-term investors should all have a superior voting uh, opportunity just like you do as a founder. So, and so you could imagine like every quarter that you hold the stock at adding some multiplier to the amount of votes you get or yeah, something yeah, exactly. like that? Yeah, exactly. Like, like the, the, the LTSE software makes it possible for companies to design programs like this because they can track the long-term ownership in real time. And if you trade out, you... And if you know who the investors are, whereas you can give today, them the appropriate like reward. Yeah. yeah, okay. So like we don't mandate this specific voting system because, you know, it's controversial. And there's some people who they think like one share, two votes. It's like, there was a big Wall Street Journal article about this, what called one share, two votes, basically like how hedge funds, they borrow extra money, like right at the last second before a proxy contest to get extra votes like that day. And then get it. It's just like I think that's indefensible, but I but that's currently allowed under the rules. So there's kind of a, a big debate about like what's the best system. And I kind of feel like because none of these systems is exactly right, we should just we should have more experimentation with different models till we find the right one. I happen to like this particular one, but it you know that would make sense for like a Google type company that really has control and you know is founder owned and i could see that making sense i could imagine different different scenarios for other companies and i could imagine a smaller cap company saying you know we don't want to mess around with vote. voting control isn't even really our issue the issue is just creating an incentive for people to be long-term investors and then so let's do something like a progressive dividend so so i'm not ideological about it i just think like neither side can really justify what it's advocating for and we like this you see this a lot in ideological battles where everyone's like drawn to more extreme positions because no, they they don't they feel like if you give those people an inch, they'll take the whole thing, right? right. And so, yeah, not to make any meta commentary here. Well, it's but. interesting. I mean, let's just say what it is. Like we're making sort of interesting political allegories, and I I've heard you describe this before as allowing your long-term shareholders to become citizens of the republic with you and sort of let's get away from this sort of feudalism mentality and let's say look if you want to go on a 20-year journey with us where you continue buying up your position in the company Mm -hmm. you know you help us make good decisions you own this thing for the long like of course you should be more participatory in helping us figure out where it's going next yeah i think it's actually very logical and really a genuine win-win so it's even a win for the quantitative guys. This was a surprise to me. Whoa. 
a bunch of these quantitative traders, like they're they're not immoral, they're amoral from the point of view of companies. Yeah. It's not that they're trying to do something harmful, they just don't care. Yeah. So I'll tell you a story. I was sitting with a quantitative trader once and I was like trying to explain the system to him and he was just like, I don't get it, who cares? Why, he just was like, I don't, why is this important? And I was like, okay, imagine a hypothetical with me. Imagine one day in the future, you've engineered an artificial short against a company and today the stock is down 10%. So you just made a lot of money. And he was like, yeah. You can just like see on his face. Like, I watch billions. I'm yeah, familiar yeah. with. He's like, yeah. this, is aw- this is an awesome story. Tell me more. And I'm like, okay. Do you realize that the next day, like 3,000 middle managers who work at that company are running around because there's a crisis. It's time to change the company's strategy. Because the stock price. Because the stock price We just, just saw this on the Disney Plus episode. Like when um, Disney was... They had their earnings call in August 2015, and they were like, we're seeing disruption in the cable industry. Cord cutting is happening. ESPN is down. And they had plans for Disney+. Plus. Stock dropped 10%. They were like, we are accelerating the plans for Disney+. Plus." Now, in right. that case, it was the right decision. But like, but a lot of times, even a company like Disney, stock price makes a lot absolutely. of impact. So, so I, and so the guy was like, I, he was like, why? He couldn't understand why anyone would care. He's like, it's just a short. It doesn't have anything to do with them. It's just you know yeah, their was, intrinsic like, value is identical to what it right, was. Right, like yesterday. it was just as valuable, and the strategy was. He's like, and, and I was like, so, so you are approving of your role in governance here in changing the company strategy. He was like, this makes no sense. When I short cattle futures, the cows don't care. I was like, right. This this guy is not <laughs> someone who cares about yeah, governance. He's not trying to it's, wreak havoc. He's his just, average holding period in a security is ten minutes. So he was describing to me when he his firm had this policy that he hated that if they get a proxy they must vote the proxy. A lot of a lot of mutual funds, a lot of fir- yeah. firms have yeah. this view that if you get a proxy you have an obligation to vote. Right. And it, to him it was like I held it for ten minutes and I was so unlucky. I was fishing and I pulled up a boot. Right, it's like yeah, oh yeah. man, now I have to vote this stupid proxy. I have no. So he's clue. trying to get his book down to zero when proxy. You know, he would love. He would set. love it. And so I was like, would you prefer? <laughs> he's like your. He's genuinely a tourist in the best sense of the word. He does not care. He's just passing through. He just wants to get the money in it. Like he's doing a technical thing. And so he would love for governance to be somebody else's problem. He would love to have that be completely different. It actually makes sense to him. And then we talked a lot of long-term investors, especially the, the big asset owners. We have built the world's most efficient trading system in history for trading 100 share lots. If you want to trade 100 shares of stock, it's awesome. Yep. You want to trade 3 million shares? Yeah. Oh, now you oh, got that's why stuff problems. you got to go. Yeah, you want to do that. You got to go to a big investment bank and you got to engineer a block trade. It's that's extremely difficult market when the market is closed, like all this kind of stuff. Yeah, it's really it's very expensive and, and hard. And, and for a lot of technical reasons, that I don't know that would be of interest to your listeners. Most long term investors are chronically underweight the companies they really believe in because they cannot get the allocation they want. They can't get into the good venture funds. They can't get onto a roadshow. They don't trade enough. And then once a company is public, they can't do the large block transactions they want to do. The stock price starts to go up. Now they, they've like missed their target. So they're under, like normally in the old, old days, you would buy a big position. It would go up. You would take the gains from that position to buy more. But if you miss the train, now your target is behind. And so you can't do it. So, so they they actually can't get the ownership they want. And so companies, even in, even in the, some of these direct listings, we're seeing lots and lots of really good companies who just... They have too few long-term investors on the cap table, and it's not it's not actually a good situation for anybody. And this is the craziest part. 
Not there to is, mention those guys aren't setting the price because the price is set by the trades that are being executed. Sure, and, and your if you're employees, a long-term holder, then you're not making trades, so you're not helping push the information into the, into the market about that's what exactly right. So that worth. that drives way more volatility, it, way more confusion for employees. Your employees are generally your longest-term shareholders, and so they're watching the ticker every, every day, day. And they, I mean, it's just it, I ask CEOs who've taken their company public, biggest change you noticed afterwards? They're always like, everyone's on Yahoo Finance every day now. Is that still true that employees are the longest term holders? I always felt like when I was at Microsoft that like everyone was dumping their stock all the time. Just like, I mean, if well, you're, you're locked says a lot in about because the era of your, that you were there. It, it, I, it could, I could probably guess what yeah, you're doing. You should have <laughs> held that stock then. But, but you, you are by necessity because of your grant period. Like you get a grant right. and then you invest into that over four years. Yep. So Yeah. Well, and if you think about the concept of career equity, which is like, the really the, thing that the financial term that dominates most employees of most organizations' compensation is their perception of future promotion opportunities. People that are trying to make a career at a place are very long that place's survival. And so for them to, I think it's actually like toxic for them to be on Yahoo Finance. So like if you use longer term compensation instruments, we, we obviously we sell software to companies to provide the information to employees in a better way. But if you know, for example, if you know in real time what the long-term investors are doing as a class, then you can report to your own employees, here's the, here's the price as it perceived by our long-term investors with all noise removed. And you'll realize that like most days, nothing happened. The fundamental of the company. So like my dream one day is to have a big ticker somewhere where the same number just goes by. You know, Dow Jones Industrial <laughs> Average and just yeah. the same number going by because most days nothing happened. All this noise is just that. It's, it's just noise. Well, it's and when something like does happen, it's news. The private markets have gotten so perverted now that like what I'm about to say is very much uh, idealist versus reality, but it's kind of like the private markets and venture investing, right? Like an evaluation is assigned to a company. A venture firm invests at that valuation. You go work for a while, 12 to 18, 18 months, months later. 18 months go by before yeah, there's another step change in valuation. <laughs> like, Yeah. I mean, I know a lot of founders... No one in D.C. And, and a lot of people in New York can't believe this, but I know a lot of founders who don't think there should be continuous trading. Right? Like you think about like how Elon Musk runs SpaceX. There's yeah. a regularly scheduled company-driven auction where people can buy in or sell. The company sets the price. It's extremely restrictive as a regime. And there's a reason like he's yeah. so unhappy in the public markets. He also has this thing in the private market. He's in complete Talk control. about a company that will probably never go public. Yes, what he, that's, what he, that's what he said. Well, so, that's, so this is the other trend I wanted to get your thoughts on really i think probably since you've started ltse this whole massive expansion of the private markets yeah. staying private longer you know people we've talked about on the show before i remember when when dave goldberg was ceo of survey monkey and he said i'm never taking this company public we're going to be private for life uh, and obviously now they're a public company so that's different but dave sadly no longer with us yeah that's a very sad how have you guys learned through all of this change that's happened uh, as you've been building so, LTSE? I was talking to a VC five years ago, and he said to me, Eric, I just don't get it. If private companies can raise unlimited capital on whatever terms they want, whenever they want, with no disclosure requirements, no accountability, no publicity, why would they go public? And I was like, great, let's, let us interpret your sentence as a bit field and let's make each clause of those a bit. I agree, but when all the switches are set to true, you're right, Why? like really, like there's a thermostatic equilibrium that exists at all times between the private and public markets. And if you make being private relatively more attractive or being public relatively less attractive, you will cause more gas to stay in one side of the chamber than the other. So companies will be private long. It's like a very, very, very predictable consequence of policy choices that we've made as a society. I was like, do you honestly believe 
that all those bits will be true forever. And he was like, I'm not sure. I was like, well, why don't you call me back <laughs> when the when the bleep hits the fan? Yeah. Because this is coming. And the time to have invested in a solution to this problem is not the day that everything crumbles, but five years ahead of time. So you should really be investing in LTSE. And it didn't work. But, <laughs> but, uh, but other well, far-sighted and, and investors saw it that way. And now here we are. And all, every one of those yeah. things is under, under threat, right? We have seen... All kinds of we mismanagement. We just covered WeWork, you know. You know, and yeah. it was you not know, to name any names, but yeah. we have seen horrible mismanagement in the private markets. We've seen valuations that are totally out of control. And and my personal pet peeve that I don't think enough attention is being spent to is we're seeing a large number of secondary transactions with relatively high volumes at high valuations with no disclosure and information asymmetry. And like my grandparents lived through the depression and they told me, I, like these were like spooky stories for me growing up as a kid. From my, I, Did everyone else not have grandparents that lived through the depression <laughs> and they not tell them these stories? I look around and I think, I have heard these stories before. This isn't right. There's a reason that our grandparents worked out the system the hard way that you know large block transactions should come with, account, with accountability and transparency and that's how you prevent fraud. Yeah. And and I, I think as more and more of these stories come out, it's going to be uh, well, it's going to be pretty. Really, I think for for LTSE, what's really the most interesting piece of the WeWork saga is the last gasp, you know, save that they tried. Yeah, was. An IPO. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so yeah, like when you're scraping the bottom of the barrel yeah. of options. It's like, wow, yeah. we can't. Yeah, all those or many of those bits seem to have flipped the other way. And yeah. so now we like need that. to, you know, jam it out the door. Yeah. Didn't work. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. no, that's not that's not the way to go. And, and a, big, a big part of our mission at LTSE is to get companies to adopt good governance from a very early age. Yeah. So we run by far the largest uh, corporate governance platform for startups. But we don't call it that. Right, we, like, because you can't sell startups on corporate governance. Corporate governance is no, extremely no poorly marketed. Like, I cannot wait. I, give me, give me some corporate governance. But what, let me tell you, like, what is that? The the largest. Um. So so we go to market under a variety of brand names for distinct problems that ca- that founders mm-hmm. face. So like yeah, RNA valuations and cap table management, runway planning. I can't tell you how many startups I meet with don't know how much runway they have. It's like cardinal sin totally. number one. Don't guess. Don't have some finance person, especially before you have a board. You better, you better know. But most founders don't. We do option planning and um, hiring planning, which again, most founders don't don't. And so these are all individual SaaS individual tools. Yeah, so, so you can go to CapTable.io, FastForNA.io, HiringPlan.io, StartupRunway.io, um, and uh, sensing a trend. Yeah, they're like we're very, 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 very straightforward naming and very consistent. And that you know the tools are part of a common a common platform, and. You know, we build them for founders to use themselves, so it's a high focus on usability and design, and you don't have to have a GC or a CFO to use them for you. It's just We're just trying to take as much cost out of the ecosystem as we can, but then while we have you there, it's like while you're, I'll give you an example, our hiring plan product uh, has completely free compensation data for market data for startups. So you can figure out for every job, your, every job offer you're giving, we can tell you exactly what the 25th, 50th, and 75th percentile cash and equity grants are for your stage, your geography, mm. your industry. Is that so just open or do you require com- like It's a, completely free. You just great. go to hiringplan.io. You can just sign up for it right now. It doesn't cost you nothing. That's such a like Zillow type thing where like all that data exists. So right now up. startups are paying a lot of money paying for that money data. For it. like, like, why no, pay the money for the not, data? Not like, needed. So we, we yeah. just, we get it and we, we do it free. And then while you're there, wouldn't you like to know if your offer letters that you give are at market or not? Sure you would. Well, while you're checking that, would you also like to split it up by demographics? Wouldn't you like to know if you have bias in your offer letters? Now, most founders are like, of course I don't have bias. I run a perfect meritocracy. It's like, well, then great. The analysis will show (laughs) what a great meritocracy you are, and then you'll feel good about yourself. But if it doesn't, wouldn't it be a lot cheaper to solve the problem now 
versus when you're reading about it in the Wall Street Journal five years from now. And think how expensive these problems get when they're allowed to fester. So we really try to help people find their way to ethics and good governance. Um, because a lot of these mistakes are inadvertent. It's just it's just ignorance. It's not it's not malice. It's just people don't know better because a lot of times it's the first time they're doing it. Yep. Well, this is a really good time to talk about. So wh- where is the company now? You've got this license um, yeah. with the SEC. You have, I assume, a revenue generating business with with all these SaaS tools that are yeah. going to kind of help people prepare. No one has listed yet. What could it look like when people list? When could that happen? Is that allowed to happen right now? Not what? yet. Not yet. So okay. yeah, you should think your listeners should think of us as having acquired the world's most expensive taxi medallion, <laughs> but we are not yet driving the car around. So okay. we got approved by the SEC in May. The bigger deal actually is we got our principles-based differentiated listing standards approved, I think in August. So we're just starting to work our way through the technical filings now to actually stand up the exchange. It's quite a involved process to and, do this in a regulated way. And this is a superset of the requirements to list on any other exchange, That's right? right? It's so much so that you can even dual list. So if you still want to go ring the bell at NYC, God bless you. Um, this can be, we're happy to be the secondary uh, listing venue. So people could trade, uh, investors could choose That's which right. of the exchanges they'd like to And And trade. when people do an IPO with LTSE, whether we're the primary or the secondary venue, you get the same level of liquidity and access to um, liquid options for your um, for your Oh, interesting. Investors. So there's no, there's no liquidity penalty. So you could there's buy no, shares that were previously on the NASDAQ, if that companies listed on NASDAQ exactly. and then own them through the long-term yeah. stock exchange? The literal words you just said to describe how that works are not 100% correct, okay. but not, not in any I way assume that, that I don't know. But, not, but yeah. I functionally, that's, that's exactly the right idea. The protections that LTSE embodies are enacted through the company's charter and they follow the security wherever it trades. Mm, cool. So it's a pretty, I, I think the hardest thing, the reason this company took me more than five years to figure out how to start is just the technical and legal challenge yeah, of combining full liquidity with those protections was quite the um, intellectual challenge, but we got there. So anyway, to, to make a long story short, we should begin operations in 2020. And then this is, we put long-term right in the name of the company. So <laughs> our employees and investors are like, you know, we, we warned everybody. But once we start operations. It's a good thing you chose lean startup instead of fast startup. As you're yes, like. well, that's right. That's exactly right. We've been trying to make this point for a long time that that lean doesn't mean fast in an absolute sense, but just fast compared to the industry that you're in. So we are actually, even though it took us almost three years to get this um, exchange approved, we're actually the fastest Form 1 approval in history. So we're faster than it has ever been done before. It's just huh. really freaking yeah, slow. Yeah. So yeah, anyway, senators but, but, used to but, travel uh, to Washington by horse and buggy, like it. Yeah, you, you, yeah, it's exactly right. So, so you know, we're trying to move the industry in uh, in a good direction. But the thing I wanted to say was, so we will go live in 2020, and then we will be legally authorized to begin the process of soliciting companies to list on LTSE. Oh, I see, oh, which is why CapTable.io like is so important. It's like, let's for find funds, them. Like you can't. Oh, yeah. yeah. So it'll be it'll be a little while before you so know. So people lots are like Series are A, Series B. That's when they should be thinking about. Hey, like four years, you know, two, three yeah, years yeah. from now. But companies yeah. could existing public companies could also adapt. That's right. Guys, right? And, and listen, and, and if someone in the class of 2020 IPOs wanted to list an LTSE, you know, we would be delighted and thrilled, and that would be wonderful if that should happen. We'll work very hard to support them, but you know, just from like as an expectation setting exercise, we don't really know how long this is going to take and that's okay that's why we raise a lot of money and even by modern standards so this is a show where we sort of analyze and, and grade businesses so like i want to make sure we understand the business model sure, here yeah. traditionally a stock exchange would be they make money every time a trade happens so they're incentivized to have lots and lots of transactions which in part is why we see the lots and lots of transactions that we have today your business model is different uh, tell us about that 
we believe that one of the most powerful things you can say when you're selling to a customer, like when we sit down with a CEO, we want to be able to say to them, look, we are the only stock exchange you will ever meet where you're the customer. We make our money by selling you products and services that you believe are value add. And we sell some products and services to your long-term investors. We have trading on our platform, but our goal is not to serve traders primarily. We're not anti-traders. I don't think traders are bad, mm. but we have enough financial institutions who primarily serve traders. We'd like there to be at least one mm. whose main job is to serve its actual customers. So, so your marketplace right without a take rate business model. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I mean, well, it's like a marketplace like... Um, you know, you're subsidizing either supply or demand, right? Like, mm -hmm. and if you're an investment bank or you're an exchange, the supply is companies and equity securities. The demand are the investors. So who do you think they're serving? <laughs> you know, you guys are flipping that on. Yeah, right that's exactly right. And in fact, they don't call them companies. They call them issuers. Yeah, right. Which is one of my favorite euphemisms of financial <laughs> services. Like the, the ATM machines that print out the certificate. Like the real customers trade. The issuers just issue. Yeah. That's what their job <laughs> is to do the issuing. So so that's that's a big part of what, of what we do. Now, we do have a stock trading platform. And we want to be the premier stock trading venue for infrequent traders, for long-term investors. So we've built up. Um, and to uh, what you said earlier, like a very valuable service you could offer is like, you want to buy $500 million worth of stock? Right. We can facilitate you buying $500 yes. million. Yes. So, yes, we have a number of things that we offer to companies where they can do those kinds of capital raises um, without, you know, and, and still consummate the transaction after market close where their investors can't be front run, but where the company can have a say in the kinds of investors that can acquire the stock. So they can basically place the stock with hmm. their existing long-term investors. And is that the sort important. of service that you would charge for? Yeah, exactly right. Got it. We try to build services that are valuable for companies at every stage of their life to and through the IPO. So we're very strong in the seed series ABC stage with these are kind of early stage tools we've been talking about. We have a separate product suite, which is not yet publicly announced, but where we have customers um, that are in the late stage, you know, pre-IPO stage. And then, you know, we'll eventually take those companies public, we hope, and, and maintain, you know, maintain a software relationship with them as well as a listings relationship. That's our, that's our long-term goal. Got it. Cool. So... We're going to move to grading now, and obviously this is so speculative that it's difficult to grade. We have a mechanism for doing this because lots of times we talk about things that just happened. So um, let's talk about the A-plus case. So what would it look like a decade from now if this has gone phenomenally well? And then let's talk about the F case where, you know, hey, this was a, a great experiment. I'm glad we tried it, but why did it fail or why could it have failed? And I'll start with that A-plus case by, by throwing out the idea that this might enable a whole bunch of goodness in the world and new innovation, but actually be a way worse business than any of the other stock exchanges ever have been. It's interesting that that could be an A-plus for the world, but apples to apples, if you bought shares of LTSE today, or if you had bought shares of NASDAQ in 1973, like buying NASDAQ in 1973 may have been a much better bet. I mean, that's totally possible. I've learned a lot about what it means to build a long-term oriented mission-oriented company, which, you know, I had paid lip service to that stuff before, but like I worked in consumer internet, you know, <laughs> it's not the same. It's just not the same. The look on so, Eric's face is priceless. So every person who comes to work here and every investor we allow to invest in the company, we have to have a serious conversation with them about risks and downsides. And in particular, we say we are trying to fix a trillion dollar problem in capitalism itself. Tim O'Reilly has that famous adage about create more value than you capture. We're going to create that order of magnitude of value or die trying. That's what we know for sure. Whether we capture any of it for ourselves, I don't know. 
probably is going to be fine. I'm pretty sure if you create a trillion dollars of value, like you don't have to create, you don't have to capture a very high percentage to make an (laughs) awful lot of money, but we don't know. And frankly, we don't care. Now, our investors care because they want returns. (laughs) But like, but we have a fair candidate. It's like, look, if you have an IRR target in your fund for like the next seven years, like, please don't invest in this company. Well, I have to imagine, too, to what we were just talking about. You know, you don't have to uh, speculate or, or, you know, say percentages or numbers or anything. But like, if you just think about what the problems are with the current system, I think a lot of it does hinge around these large dollar size transactions, whether that's, you know, a SoftBank style round of a private, currently private company where you're raising a billion dollars at once with no governance and no, you know, rights and preferences, or you're in the public markets and you're a long-term holder and you're trying in a publicly traded security to get a $500 million position, you know, those are hard right now. And like, if you could solve those and you, you could probably like make some money on those but, transactions. You like, know, I just, I, that's <laughs> of all the things to worry about with this. It's honestly the thing I worry about the least, like, you know, cause people are always like, well, what if the incumbent exchanges just copy your reforms and put you out of business? And I'm like, you mean if we change the world? Well, also there's but like an innovator's don't. dilemma there. Like I don't. It, yeah, right. Well, it's, exactly. it's like, I, I, like you, I mean, wouldn't that be great? I tried really hard I, in, the, in the early years of this. I tried very hard to give this idea away for free to the incumbent exchanges. I begged them to build it so I wouldn't have to. Um, and you know, here we are. So I'm not. But they're like, not going to cannibalize their revenue stream either. Like they're not going to. They're not going to get the, rid of the, the problem. Trading Listen, volume. I wish. I wish they would copy us. That would be great. So, so it's. But it is important for us, like so, you know, especially in recruiting, just to be really clear-eyed about this. We don't exactly know what the rewards for us will be. But but we hire people who are going to sleep really well at night knowing we solved this problem, whether we get paid or not. It's just that's not the most important thing. And that, I think that's how you build truly great companies is you have people who are in it for the mission. You have an understanding that business model is important and economics are important in the same way, you know, that oxygen is important. But like you don't live for oxygen. It's the other way around. And that's become kind of a cliche idea in our world today. But I think it's still it's even still underappreciated how powerful it is. Yeah. Okay, well, real quick, if it completely fails, what are the most likely reasons? Oh, how can happen? we count the ways? <laughs> I mean, and listen, I, we go through this with every employee, so, so I'm, I'm happy to be very open about it. The first and most obvious thing is we are dealing with a very conservative system where change is really hard and people resist change. And it's not just in, in like a lot of enterprise software situations, you have the, the generalized resistance to change that like people are used to their old crappy enterprise software and they don't really want to get the new stuff and be trained on a new thing, like all that mm-hmm. usual stuff. But here we compound that with the fact that this is a reform that is actively opposed by people who are making astronomical amounts of money from the status quo. And the government's involved. You said it, not me. So it ain't going to be pretty. And like... A lot of people think it's a suicide mission to go up against those entrenched forces and win. And it may yet be. Though those people thought we'd be dead long before now, so at least <laughs> we've gotten something right. And like is is there yeah. any reason why the com- why it would you would fail to be able to get companies to list? Is is there something we'll where, get to that next, yeah. sure. So yeah, that's like the general, you know, like people didn't even think we could get this approved by the regulators. That right. was a huge accomplishment in itself that was very, very unlikely. And we were sabotaged multiple times and we almost died many times. I, mean, I could tell you all kinds of crazy stories of what that looked like behind the scenes. But also, even if we get everything right and we survive our political problems and we fight off the forces of darkness and, 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 customers might still walk up to the precipice of this and say, you know what? Um, I'd like to go second. (laughs) Maybe, and maybe everybody would like to go second. How do you, how do you lean start up your way to knowing if customers will buy? 
we have spent a lot of our time on that <laughs> on that question. But and you know, I think I have you know we we, we use every trick in the book. So if your listeners have studied any lean startup, you'll know about how to build a concierge MVP. You'll know how to build you know non-binding letters of intent as proxies for I mean, like yeah, I'm you sure. name it, you name it. We've tried everything, and you know we we have uh, significant companies who have who have signed up as much as they're allowed to sign up. So sign up so far, and we obviously have all this software, and we've built all these relationships. So like I I have a lot of confidence in this, but like at the end of the day. Until customers do it, you don't know. Now, the, whoever goes first will reap unbelievable rewards, I think, of the kind of messaging and positioning that that will win for them as seen, being seen as a leader who's changing capitalism itself. But maybe that's not enough to overcome. Well, I imagine also risk. demand from the long-term investor community, right? Like, Yeah, very significant. And, and, they, and they feed off each other. So like when we, you know, when, when companies want to know more about why they should do this, they often say, well, well, how do I know what investors will think of this? And we're like, well, would you like to talk to some of them? And that's like, like a radical idea. Like mm-hmm. what? Market making. Talk Imagine to them. that. It's like, well, yeah, would you like, I can put you in touch with the CEO of some of the world's largest asset owners and they'll take your call and you guys could talk. And they're like, Really? And when I talk to asset owners, I'm like, they're like, well, how do I know it's really true that the next generation of companies wants X, Y, Z? I'm like, would you like to talk to them? (laughs) Because we have become so intermediated. It's unbelievable. Even like, I won't name any names, but you can imagine some of these next gen companies that have severe political problems all over the world with like unions and local governments and right. I always ask them, so have you talked to any public pension funds? about investing in your company or ipo they're like no do you think i should oh you well on your road show right (laughs) well no you won't because those funds don't get invited to oh right right because they don't trade enough only the allocators will be there. only the allocators will be there so so it's actually like this wild situation where two of the most logical partners Hmm. like being an being a good owner is one of the most underrated skills in our world today like you see this in sports you see it in corporations right like like having good ownership like really is a source of competitive advantage and people who are investing for multi-generational timelines are excellent owners so you would think that companies that have a long-term perspective and excellent owners who have a long-term requirement that they would naturally want to spend time together and whenever we do get them together it's amazing because they have such a bond and yet it's so hard to do because there's so many intermediaries in the way and the intermediaries have no incentive to drive connection between investors and companies directly that that's how they get paid so part of it is just having the willingness to to build those relationships so if that if that's not enough then it won't work and then we haven't even gotten into all the technical ways it could fail like that's like a hundred of them we will catch you with that one another time i think this is a fantastic place to leave this eric where can listeners find you and the ltse Sure, ltse.com for everything uh, exchange related. I am still using the leanstartup.com for my my personal uh, domain if you want to learn about me. And obviously, we're all on, on Twitter and everywhere else. What and for, for the tools for earlier stage companies. Yeah, you can go to ltse.com slash tools, or you can try any of our individual tools, captable.io, uh, hiringplan.io, startuprunway.io. If any of your listeners are in a venture capital firm and you'd like to extend the suite as a whole to your portfolio companies, we do all that kind of stuff too. So we do all, and everything we do on the early stage size is free or freemium. So we're not extracting fees from anybody. We don't think that's right. And uh, we also are the only provider in the space who actually believes that you own your own data. Not we, so we have- <laughs> I was going to ask you about competitors, but export. that, yeah, that like, says, uh, you've said all you need to say. You got it. So anyway, so please, uh, anyone who's interested, please do uh, give us your feedback and try those out. Thank you. 
Awesome. Well, listeners, that is all we have for today. If you like this or any other episode, please don't be shy about sharing it on social media or leaving us a review on iTunes. If you want to go deeper on company building topics, you should consider becoming an Acquired Limited partner, and you can click the link in the show notes or go to glow.fm slash acquired, and all new listeners get a seven-day free trial. And starting right now, here's an excerpt of our latest episode with Vlad Magdalene, the founder and CEO of Webflow. With that, thank you to Silicon Valley Bank, and we will see you next time. Welcome, LPs. Today we are doing an episode I have been excited about for a long time with Vlad Magdalene, the co-founder and CEO of Webflow. Webflow is a company I am personally very passionate about since I grew up as a web developer, always fighting between building websites from scratch in PHP and hand coding HTML and CSS. PHP. Dude. Facebook days. (laughs) The lamp stack, baby. Oh, boy. Uh, there were WYSIWYG editors You're out there. Yourself, I know, like Dreamweaver, uh, but they always required you to do all the hosting yourself. They, I, I don't know the state of the product today. This is like you know, twelve-year-old data, but generated garbage code. And uh, Webflow has been an amazing answer to provide the ease of use of a graphical user interface while still being an enormously powerful tool. And uh, we personally use the site for Acquired. Uh, we use it for PSL, and basically all of our portfolio companies use it as well. Uh, so Vlad, awesome. it's, it's so powerful that even, you know, I can now update the website, and add, <laughs> <laughs> which is, uh, you know, the yeah. last time I wrote a line of code, I think I was probably maybe 20 years old. So yeah, Vlad, I have the designer credit. So one year ago, David, yeah. has a, David has an editor login. Thank Got you, it. Vlad. That's so kind that of says a lot. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so listeners, who is Vlad? Well, Webflow, you know, while most of you may know this company only from the last year or two, it is a at least decade old company that I believe, Vlad, you started as a side project in 2005? Yep. Uh, it was actually something that started when I was still in college, ah. uh, when I was working at an agency part time as an intern, and then turned into my senior project, then turned into uh, a couple failed attempts at starting it as a business. Then I joined into it, sort of worked there for a while, then had another failed attempt at turning into a business uh, during sort of the Web 2.0 heyday, and then finally started it, hopefully for the last time in 2012. Wow. wow. All attempts to start the same business. Same business, same name, different co-founders every time. Two of those attempts just by myself, uh, sort of looking wow. for a co-founder. The third attempt actually was with two Intuit buddies, uh, one of which... Uh, so that attempt didn't work out and can go into sort of like the history behind that, but sort of fizzled out. And over time, one of those co-founders ended up starting his own company, got into YC, got acquired by Stripe, and then came back as a senior product manager here. So now he as one of our product leaders. The circle uh, of life. Yeah, exactly. Oh, wow. So I sort of worked on it in many different iterations with multiple people. And uh, finally, something worked. So, wow. Wow. That's so cool. Well, so we'll get into all of that. So it's the 2012 version. That was the the start of the company. That's that we, the best vintage so far. We know uh, it today. Far, yeah, exactly. <laughs> wow. And you, I think it only raised maybe a, a few million dollars between then and, and now when you did the... I yeah. Think. So we was started in 2012, started that with my brother, and then one of my buddies from Intuit joined uh, a few months later, Bryant. Ended up being the third co-founder. And then we, about a year later, we got into YC and then did uh, 
a seed round, which at the time seemed huge. It was $1.4 <laughs> million, uh, even though other companies were you know, closing their seed rounds much faster or uh, they were bigger. And then we ended up doing a small, well, small relative to today extension of another 1.5 about a year later. And then got to profitability and sort of didn't worry about funding for a long time. And that was what, 2015 you got to profitability? Late 2015, yeah. Awesome. Listeners, you should know the, the company then uh, for the last four years has raised no money, as, as Vlad said, and then this year raised a $72 million Series A from Excel that is coinciding today with sort of this no-code movement. So I think we'll, we'll get in a little bit of that. So th- this notion isn't brand new. WYSIWYG web editors had right. existed before, mm-hmm. and it's kind of like the right one to run anywhere, it'll finally be good this time. Yeah. Like it's still not good this time. So why is it that Webflow has really found product market fit and created this nice product with a web-based WYSIWYG editor yeah. when it's failed so many times before? Right. So two things. One, I think if we tried this, the same exact thing in 2007, it would have failed. Uh, and I'll tell you why. Like the reason direct manipulation works in Webflow is that we can actually, emu- not emulate, we have the real thing inside of the browser itself. So Webflow is built in a browser. You can sort of think of Webflow as DevTools or Web Inspector with a lot more visual tools on top, right? A lot of other WYSIWYG tools, what they try to do was like, hey, we're going to take a graphic design tool like Photoshop or, or Illustrator or Sketch or whatever, and we're going to try to randomly guess or, or best guess what the generated code should be. It's the approach that doesn't respect the the core principles, the core foundations of what the web is. And the web is like, you know, you have these DOM nodes uh, and they're essentially boxes on top of boxes, inside of boxes, et cetera. And everything is a box, right? You want to make a circle, you have to make a box with rounded corners, right? That's a circle. <laughs> uh, or you have like a, you know, an SVG or something like that. I think Webflow is the very first application that that said, okay, here are the core primitives. Uh, you know, you have styles, you have classes, you have like CSS abstractions. And what we're going to do is create a pretty shallow abstraction that that still forces you to understand those core principles, not necessarily the core syntax. Uh, so for example, when you're doing layout in, in Webflow, it's Flexbox or CSS Grid. You just don't know it. The visual tools built on top of it are a representation of those same like constraints and limitations. They're not like draw anything and then we'll try to guess what the code is. Right? It's, it's literally like adjust the margin and the padding. Exactly. Just in a you're nice you're way. almost like one-to-one making code changes. You're just doing it through a different language. Mm. Uh, it's almost like if you're using software to create music, mm-hmm. uh, you have to understand the core principles of, of music. You might not, you know, have a piano in front of you, right? But you don't get to cheat by by saying, I'm going to create like a, a masterpiece by not understanding like good rhythm and etc. So that's the same thing with Webflow. Like you, it, it does have a, a, a more you know, advanced learning curve because you have to understand the box model, because you have to understand, you don't just draw a box and then go like drag it anywhere. You have to think, okay, when the screen resizes, I have to think of this box as being 50% of the width of the current viewport, not 500 pixels, right? And then when I resize, I change it to 495 pixels or whatever. I sort of had to think in a more like relative, the way that a front-end developer would think, but we're erasing like 95% of the complexity in like knowing how to glue all these things together, uh, et cetera. And the other thing that made it possible was that when we first uh, started building it in 2012 was the first time that browsers were getting good enough. There was like Chrome 1.0 days. Uh, Safari and WebKit were kind of like on the same, they were using the same engine. Firefox and Internet Explorer were sort of like the old guard in terms of like, hey, this is like a way to uh, like view documents or whatever. But Google's really pushing Chrome 
as like a an application platform like they were they, like google maps that's sort of the standard of like what's what's possible as an interactive type of thing in the browser that was impossible in 2007 2008 etc so you in in order to create that full abstraction of like I'm previewing exactly what's going to ship. You have to actually show that in the browser in an iframe or something. And browsers just didn't support that until like 2011, 2012, 2013 to be to be really like that's when when browsers were like were kind of kicked into gear of like holy crap, this is yeah. a, the next wave it's of an application platform. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. 